0: Hello, oh, and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. John and myself, Gary, is... Tilt blank. Don't be so f-
1: filthy. Blanks are not necessarily filthy. We will be learning this. We will be learning a lot of things. We've done a lot of research for this show. I think this is a
0: show sort of two years in the making, what do you reckon? I mean, that's as long as we've been watching blankety blanks and match games on YouTube, pretty much.
1: So that's how all this started. Sometime when we were doing a show and we were meant to be watching something for the show, we ended up watching something else, which was Blankety Blanks, an Australian game show, which was familiar to us because we saw the British version Blankety Blank in our own childhoods and that set us to thinking, because this has its origins in the US, a show called Match Game, and we realised this was the opportunity to watch an idea get chased around the English-speaking world. One idea, in three different television systems, in three different senses of humour, which overlap in their methods and nature, but also have differences. And that's exactly the kind of thing we like to do here on this podcast. Now, I say we've done a lot of research. We've leaned heavily on one particular source when it comes to match game.
0: Yes, indeed. If you're not already listening to it, and you definitely should be, there was a fabulous show from... Stateside, USA. It's called Stu's Show. It's a chap by the name of Stu Showstack. TV professional. Done all manner of things over the years. Been warm-up guy and he's uh, he's worked on screen and shows and what have you. And basically he's got, I suppose a file of facts, absolutely chock full of contacts from the TV industry going all the way back to the nineteen fifties. And so yeah, we've been listening to the show for a few years now, and they pretty much go into all manner of different aspects of American TV over the years and a couple of the shows, which are available in the Stu Show archive in particular, talk about the development of Match Game itself and also talk about the host, Gene Rayburn. So these are available on stewshow.com and these play a big part in our sort of research for the Match Game component of this podcast.
1: The shows go out on Wednesdays. They're on break at the moment, coming back on Wednesday, September 27th. They go out on Wednesdays as netcasts from stewshow.com. You can listen to them or you can watch them. Instructions are on the website. And then the day after, they go up as podcasts, which you have to pay 99 cents for. But really, when you look at how much information, how colossal this archive is, it obviously takes up a lot of bandwidth. Or, of course, you can become a Patreon like I did, and then you get 10 downloads a month. So if we seem really well-informed... It's just from listening to podcasts. Listening to podcasts is educational, not this one, sadly. So, our story starts in 1962 with the Goodson Todman production match game. Goodson Todman, television production company, most famous for their game shows. I meant to write a list of all the different formats that came from them, and I didn't do that. And I think it's possibly because I was overfaced. Oh,
0: well, there's just too many to mention, but The Price is Right is one of them. And you must have seen their name. I mean, if you've ever even glanced at the credits of a game show on British TV in the last 30-odd years, you're going to have seen Goodson Todman.
1: Fundamental to most game shows is the idea of ask a question, get an answer. But you can't just do that. You have to have a gimmick, a twist. So the initial premise is a question is asked and a number of people answer, and the more people who match the answer the more money is won. That's it. And initially, there isn't really that much more happening. The pilot of Match Game exists. Now, it's different from the format we know and love. It's not the six celebrities in two tiers. Two celebrities. Each one has two members of the public either side, so it's split into two teams. And the first question asked, I think, was name an American inventor other than Edison. There are blank questions, but it's things like complete the phrase. King of blank. There's no innuendo. And as a result, Match Game came, and Match Game looked like it was going to go. show was cancelled. And I think it was Goodson who told the question setter, Dick Bartolo. I think he's one of the question setters, but he's the one whose name we know because he's the one who came up with the idea for saving the game. So he said, look, right, we've got a little bit of time to play. I don't think that happens anymore in television. If somebody said, you've got six weeks, and then you cancelled... I'm not sure anybody said, let's play. Let's push the boundary just a little. So his famous example is, Mary liked to pour gravy on John's blank. (laughs) Yeah, even then. I mean, you've heard that many times. We've quoted that to each other. But you get the laugh. And it's just this typical match game question twisted. You could say, name a food that you can pour gravy on. So first there's this idea, well, I can't do that. It's dirty. It's like everybody laughs. But then they're going to write down meatloaf or potatoes. They're not going to write down the dirty answer. So you get the laugh, but it's the old thing. of It's all in the mind. To the pure, all things are pure. The self-cleaning joke. Yes. So Goodson says, well, they're not going to cancel us twice. Try it. And that got the show uncancelled. Now, there aren't that many of this original format ran from 1962 to 1969 on NBC. I think there are some later ones at the Paley Centre, but I wasn't able to get out there to check. Not I. Well, yes, but (laughs) you have a better excuse than I do. So that was it. It ran for seven years. We're not entirely sure what the later ones were like, but it was brought back on CBS in 1973. And it's interesting because, again, it's another one where the pilot for relaunching the show exists. Gary, did you watch that? I did.
0: I did indeed. And surprisingly enough, they seem to have got the the visuals of it sort of spot on from the word go. And the appearance is pretty much what then stays put all the way through the Gene Rayburn years and even into like the sort of the nineteen ninety revival and so on. As far as the actual mix of contestants is concerned, or celebrity contestants, it takes a while to get the ideal configuration and eventually it settles down and you have certain regular people in regular seats. We've talked about this before, haven't we? The blankety-blank seating arrangement. And Match Game, I suppose, in its own way, has something similar.
1: We'll get to the seating arrangement later on. One of the questions on that pilot, it's kind of like a smutty answer, but there's no blank in it. So it simply is, name a movie star, past or present, with a great body. So it's opening itself up for ribald remarks. But the question itself is not making the little light of filth go off in the head. So
0: in that part that they didn't have, for example, Errol Flynn has a large blank.
1: No, they do. They had the question, Mary never wears a blank. So there were the familiar questions, but there are these ones that they are just sort of off. They're not the old fashioned straight match game questions, but there's no joke inside the question. It's purely setting it up for comments that can be made by the celebrities, and we do get uh, Jack Klugman talking about Kirk Douglas being a good kisser. And you know what? That's the second question. So you know, so the first question on the pilot is John's daughter came home from college with a blank. Now you can take that either way. And it's interesting. Richard Dawson answers degree. We'll talk about the panelists later, but Richard Dawson, I think he's possibly the one that people think about when they think of panelists on Match Game.
0: Yes. And it's nice to see a panellist on such a show who actually has a keen eye on the contestants, the members of the public, winning a prize. Because you don't always get that. Sometimes you get people who are just concerned with giving a funny answer.
1: He has a nice balance between he's able to be witty or smutty, but he's not there to amuse himself. I think in all versions of the game, there's always that risk you're going to get a panellist who's trying to get a laugh out of the audience or the people either side of them, but they're not actually that bothered about whether it's good gameplay. And this was a tension behind the scenes. Mark Goodson, even though he had allowed the pouring gravy on blanks questions to go through, he was concerned with gameplay. Legend has it, he he would have liked them to have played the game straight. I don't know how much that's true or how much it's a case of you having too much fun. I mean, it's always one of the first warnings in broadcasting is don't have more fun than the audience. And I'm not sure that in later years it didn't lose the balance.
0: I think you do notice a difference when Richard Dawson has left.
1: That's another thing. This this shows a really fascinating little barometer of changing standards of decency and cleanliness in television. (laughs) Because eventually people do start seeing boobs. And once you've got everybody has the smutty laugh but then also gives the smutty answer, I think the show is doomed. And, oh boy, I mean, the show's currently running on ABC and nothing is left to the imagination these days.
0: I am slightly surprised, actually, just how, not even risque, just how sort of out front, so to speak, shows like Family Feud are in the States now when they're daytime shows.
1: Is Family Feud a daytime show? I thought it was on in the evenings. I've I've never stumbled across it during the day.
0: Well, any time I've stumbled across it, it's usually been early evening, but then I'm eight hours ahead of you, so... I think it does go out during the day on, I think, Fox, maybe, in some areas.
1: Okay, right. We're going to risk you being arrested by the FCC. (laughs) And the FBI. And the CIA. And the BBC. Matt Busby and Doris Day.
0: Simon Bates is going to knock my door, and he's going to say, You have
1: various means of watching television from the US. What coast are you watching from, though? Uh, I'm watching from
0: Pennsylvania. Here's the outrageous thing. Shall we let the listeners into a secret? I'm not going to incriminate myself, it's all right. But, okay, here's the thing. I have ways and means, right? And I've spoken about this before. I've been able to acquire programming from different countries. So I like to sort of channel hop, you know, from country to country and what have you. And the really annoying thing is that right now I can watch stuff from HBO directly. I can watch stuff from Showtime. I can watch stuff from the American networks and the cable networks. But I can't get the good stuff that Tilt gets because they're only available through an aerial. You've got old-fashioned telly that you have to actually be somewhere geographically to get. And I can get them. I can get Antenna, I can get Decades, and I can get the aforementioned Buzzer.
1: This is outrageous. Sucks to be you. Anyway. YouTube comments have their use. No, they don't. Controversial statement. The pilot for Match Game, both 1962 and 1973. They're both on YouTube. I looked at the 1973 pilot. In the YouTube comments, one of the contestants revealed himself and revealed a really interesting piece of information. So, the gameplay of Match Game. I'm talking as if we're all familiar with it. So, the gameplay two members of the public, six celebrities. Question is asked, an answer is given. How many of the six celebrities have given the same answer? Then there's the super match where you have to match essentially with the audience. I don't think they flag it up quite as much on later versions. On the original match game, they say, we asked 100 audience members, and that reveals something else. This idea, the super match, effectively became the format for Family Feud, or Family Fortunes, as we call it in the UK. And then there's the matching with one celebrity. So back to the standard thing, word, blank, pick a celebrity to match with, This was not always the plan. This contestant from the pilot said in the YouTube comments, Originally, the big prize was supposed to be a one-on-one match with somebody picked at random via phone, but that was problematic. At the last minute, they tried the celebrity match and it worked. I would not have known that if I hadn't read the YouTube comments.
0: That is the first recorded instance of a useful YouTube comment in history.
1: I'm assuming that they had like a list of people who were amenable to be, maybe that's why they dropped it maybe they were really just ringing numbers at random (laughs) do you want a minicab or not (laughs) so some of the weird little specifics like the ridiculously easy questions and the ridiculously not easy questions where person one gets a question like farmer wogan has been having terrible problems with his chickens the eggs all look like blanks, well what what so any number of things those eggs could look like? And then the next person gets, this Christmas I'm going to a party dressed as Father blank. Oh, well, gosh.
0: yeah, oh, okay. the,
1: time. the way some of the contestants reason, yes. But I always find that a bit frustrating when somebody gets an infinite number of potential answers in somebody, there's really only one, and if you get it wrong, we'll laugh at you.
0: Father Abraham.
1: There's a reason for this initially i don't know if this was purely in the nbc days but the questions could be changed while the game was being played because if you're getting to a stage where nobody's winning anything that's bad television so you can always throw in an easier question but then that's cheating and the game show scandals i think caused a much more public outcry in the u.s that we live with i think even now where they have this thing standards and practices there were game show scandals in the uk involving the exact same show 21 i think the outcry was less public you talk to somebody who was watching television in the 50s in the uk i don't think they'd really remember the game show scandals and yet it had a much bigger impact because limits on prizes that's really what came out of it six thousand pounds wasn't that it
0: that rings a bell yes And that went on for years. I think that that actually went on right up until the Broadcasting Act, 1990. And then we have shows like Raise the Roof, for example, where the amount, the overall prize amount is higher. And eventually we have Millionaire in 1998. Yeah, but it wasn't until mid-1990s that those kind of restrictions remained. And we had shows like the $64,000 question hosted by Bob Monkhouse, in which the top prize was
1: £6,400. So, standards and practices... Are now involved so you have to make sure that there are reasonably hard questions to make the gameplay exciting but there have to be stupidly easy ones to make sure something gets won and that's what happens they introduce the random element question a question b i think the second round questions might have been easier than the first round but that's it it's trying to satisfy two contrary impulses which is make the game fair but also make the game watchable The worst questions for me on any version of the show is a question where one of the panellists is part of the answer. What is the panellist themselves going to answer? Do
0: do you you mean that this is a question in which it's pretty much impossible that you're going to get six correct
1: answers? If on the panel, Freddie Famous is sitting there and the question is, Freddie Famous is well known in the TV industry for having a very small blank. There's any number of potentially amusing and insulting answers. Is Freddie Famous himself going to actually put an insulting thing? And then of course there's always that self-indulgent problem. If we have panellists who are more interested in amusing the audience than themselves, are they just going to make some little joke that isn't really going to obviously occur but will be a nice little in-gag between Freddie Famous and wonder well known you, you can see why I didn't use real <laughs> real celebrity names there the only
0: thing that I would add to that and this really isn't adding anything at all but if you've ever seen or if you go on YouTube and have a look at Match Game I do like that carpet and I actually would like to have that carpet in my living room I'd like my living room to actually look like the set of Match Game
1: oh, I'd like your living room to have that carpet on the walls
0: yeah I know because it, yeah, it'd be less echo I know if you're going to supply the official match game carpet, I will put it on the walls.
1: Because the other thing is the cards, the nature of the cards. And there's not necessarily complete editions. There are long chunks of early 60s match game. I don't know if Betty White is the first person to do this, but it's the earliest example I could find writing on both sides of the card. Often the little giveaway is the side of the card you're meant to write on has this attractive border so you hold it up and you definitely get this on blankety blank because you get this where they hold up the borderless side to- oh first i said this but then i said this and it's like hang on a minute <laughs> you write on the borderless side first i don't think so but fair play gary you've watched 2016 17 match game right those cards have the logo on the back so you can't write on them
0: the thing is, not that I thought that many of the contestants in the current match game would actually give a halfpenny bit. Is that a thing? As far as like the, the actual contestants winning anything is concerned. But how many of those blank cards do you get as a contestant? Because if you've got maybe more than, say, a dozen of them and you're not going to get through all of them in the recording, you could write on a couple of them. So you could still sort of get room to a bit.
1: But it just shows how much more harsh and materialistic we've got obviously trying to limit that
0: well now here's the thing till it's all very well you and i coming up with all these wild theories however i think that we need some outside assistance for this show and we're going to go coast to coast in a way or something or state to state or whatever you prefer because i believe that we're going over now live and exclusive to chicago which if memory services in illinois and we're going to speak to megan stem wade megan how are you doing
2: I'm very well. How are you?
0: I'm no bad. I'm no bad at all.
2: I'm so pleased to be here with you. Thank you for patching in Chicago today.
0: Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Welcome to Jaffa Cakes for Proust. It's going to be interesting getting an extra pair of eyes on Match Game because, of course, Tilt and I, everything that we're looking at here, of course, we can't help but draw comparisons with blankety blank singular. Presumably you've grown up watching Match Game, Match Game just being a regular part of American TV.
2: That's right. It's been in syndication reruns forever. There's always been some at least sketchy cable channel showing it almost perpetually, probably since it went off the air, at least in its original incarnation. I'm a Gen Xer, and I think even kids younger than me and the millennials and all that, they're aware of the concept at the very least. You know, Betty White is still a sensation around here, so anything that she's on gets a lot of attention, too.
0: So when would it be the first time you actually saw Match Game? I mean, presumably it would have been the Gene Rayburn version of some particular description.
2: Yes, Gene Rayburn is Match Game for me. I wasn't very aware of the 80s version until I did more research to talk to you guys. So that one just slipped past me. So I probably saw Match Game, oh, probably someday when I was stayed home from elementary school in the 80s. Um, it was on reruns on USA Network or something like that.
0: And how did you find it as a viewer? I mean, did you find, because I'm going to pursue an an odd theory of mine shortly, but how did you find it? Did you find it a warm show? Did you find it a particularly welcoming show as a viewer? Because obviously there's something magical about it, the fact that it's lasted all this time and has been exported all over the world.
2: You know, it's interesting as a child, it just seems very wacky and it's interesting to see someone... Like, for instance, Betty White that you know in a whole different context. For instance, I was a big Golden Girls fan, so that's how I knew Betty as as Rose on that show. It was interesting to see her in this very different setting saying adult things that you didn't quite understand, and it just seemed like a party that they were gracious enough to let me kind of peep in on. Um, I wouldn't say that it's one of the game shows that captured my imagination as a child as much as something like Price is Right with the zillions of different games and bidding and all that sort of thing. But it definitely has something to it, I think, with that chemistry between the celebrities that's very unique to it.
1: Innuendo isn't as central to the U.S. sense of humor as it is to the British sense of humor. So is that something that really marked it out?
2: Oh, that's a good question, you know, and that is something I noticed in viewing different versions of the show. I think what made it stand out is that everything they couldn't say, that there was a clear line They could say something like boobs, but we're not going any further than that. And I think to see the celebrities operating in these constraints made it fascinating to see what's going to happen next and how far are they going to push it? Because no, we're not a subtle people. (laughs) We say what we want to say generally, but to see Richard Dawson and Charles Nelson Riley talking about sailors and trying to figure out what they're talking about, (laughs) you know, um, it, it was compelling.
1: Because you know, the contestants were actually given a little talk before each show.
2: Yeah. Say boobs, yeah. say
1: rear end, do not say this, do not say this. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Megan, do you have particular favorite panelists? Have you got like an ideal lineup?
2: I love it when Betty White's there. I keep bringing up Betty White, but um, I, I'm happy when she's there. Um, I love Marsha Wallace. She's a little more subtle, and she's always in that last seat that's kind of tough, you know, that last, that sixth seat. Everyone has already said something funny, and we have a theme going, and that person has to try and bring up the rear, so to speak. Marsha does a great job in that seat. And Fanny Flag, I guess I'd like an all-female panel. (laughs) I enjoy a lot of the the funny ladies that they brought on.
1: Well, you know that last seat had a very specific purpose in the game? Did it? Yes. Oh, good. I get to bring out the (laughs) the seating arrangement for Match Game was top left. Male star, less able player. So that's somebody who's probably going to come out with something terrible and everybody's going to feel bad for the contestant. Then, of course, we go to Brett Summers, then Charles Nelson Riley, And the thinking is, is they will have either given a good answer or there'll be some crosstalk that will drive out that first person's terrible performance. Then, front left, sexy lady, kind of a dits, Then, of course... Richard Dawson and then strong female player, somebody who's going to probably get it right. So the whole seating arrangement seems to be based around the idea of uh, living down whatever horrible mistake William Shatner or Leslie Nielsen or whoever's of course they put um Dick Martin in that seat often, didn't they?
2: Yeah, that's right. And yeah.
1: he managed to have an amazing streak. Was this in, like two weeks without matching anybody? <laughs> now gary do you want to tell about the uk seating order because i have it in front of me if you don't well i i don't have it actually
0: in front of me but i'm quite happy to steal the punchline so to speak if you want to read it at the first five and then okay. i'll go for the uh, the jugular
1: so blankety blank seating order so top left draw less dominant comic personality back row center funny woman back row right personality so it's just somebody who's there for their name power but i think there it's like that's going to be the person who probably comes out with a wrong or terrible answer but it's lost in the middle then to the front like match game it's an actress somebody with sex appeal somebody for the host to flirt with then front row center dominant male comic personality so that is somebody who is going to maybe even start misbehaving
2: So you're Kenny Everett.
1: Yeah, Kenny Everett, his famed molestation of the microphone. And then, Gary, front row right.
0: (laughs) Front row right is what's very politely termed the idiot seat. (laughs) And this is basically going to be, I suppose, I mean, the, the best sort of comparison would be, say, Ronan Martin era Goldie Hawn. So we want somebody in there who's going to probably get it wrong and is going to get a big laugh towards the end of the particular round
1: i'm not sure if it wasn't worse in the les dos era, because in the les dos near apparently that was designated old deer oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so every, everybody everybody had a, a part to play and I, I, it does seem from what i've seen of the the american version as well as obviously the british version that the seating plan is more strictly adhered to compared with australia where it tends to be a little bit more loose.
2: Yeah, it's definitely very strict with the American version. It's always this, always that same configuration. Every once in a while, you get someone subbing in for um, Charles Nelson Reilly on a rare moment, but other than that, so we're everyone's throwing out in their names. place. Could
1: you give us little thumbnail sketches of some of the regular panelists?
2: Sure. I'll start with Charles Nelson Reilly, since I just mentioned him. He was a theater actor. And one of those gentlemen in that era who could never say he was gay, but but there was something that a little kid watching knew was very different and charming about him. And he brought a certain humor that um, really sparkled in the back row there. Kind of, um if people are familiar with Hollywood Squares, the Paul Lind Center Square personality. And then next to Charles was Brett Summers, who was the wife of actor Jack Klugman, famous for The Odd Couple, among other things. And he was actually in the pilot of the new Match Game 73 when it came back on the air and suggested his wife um, to sort of get him out of his hair, the story. And she and Charles got along so famously that, you know, they both stayed for the entire run, and they're they're a hoot together there. And then, of course, we've mentioned Richard Dawson, who is in the, the center front row, and he's famous for going on to Family Feud for years and years and years in America. Um, and, of course, was on uh, Hogan's Heroes before that. And I think what I understand was a fairly successful actor, theater actor, and television star in Britain before that, before he emigrated. Not positive about that. But, you know, he's very, very famous for Family Feud here, of course, so anyone would know that from years of those reruns. And then there were a lot of just 70s personalities who rotated in and out, people from sitcoms and comedians, actors, all that kind of thing. Just about the entire cast of MASH is on at one time or another. And they even joke at one point about not being able to get Alan Alda that he's too famous to come on, but they'll settle for Gary Berghoff, who played Radar. A lot of fun people to see when you're watching it now and thinking of all the people you grew up with on television.
1: Does Richard Dawson sound English to you?
2: Rarely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm amazed uh, yeah. by this. <laughs> I, there were a couple of things I read where, where people commented on his accent. And I, you know, a word or two once in a while but yeah I would never have known otherwise.
0: I think probably in Britain he's most recognizable for his role in the Running Man.
2: Yeah that's one of those great very meta roles playing himself sort of anyway yeah it's a great movie.
0: i messaged Tilt about this the other day but I'd be interested in your take on this Megan because you mentioned Kenny Everett there so just in passing had anyone on the panel actually given Gene Rayburn's mic the Kenny Everett treatment, how would he have reacted? My gut instinct is badly.
2: I don't think that that kind of physical comedy was part of the equation. Yeah, I don't think it would have gone over well. You know, there's a documentary about the show that maybe you've seen that's produced by Game Show Network, and I was struck by Gene saying, I loved being in charge because I could control it. So I don't think he would really enjoy anything, whether scripted or not, anything that made him look more of a fool he had a sense of humor about himself but i think he had to be in control of that
0: i'm now imagining what it would have been like if just for say one particular show say bobcat Goldwaite had been on it
2: <laughs> oh my goodness
1: gary one of the match games we watched was the famous school riot <laughs> 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 yes so there's a question and the answer given it's it's dumb Dora it was so dumb
2: how dumb is she Thank you! <laughs> <laughs> she sent her
1: cultured pearls to blank, and the answer given was school. Now, somebody said college. That got passed as a match. And then there was scuba diving school, and th- but finishing school was turned down, and Richard Dawson took the game seriously in that he wanted the contestants to win. And he was one who was not matched despite using finishing school, and so it kicks off. He's mock angry, but I think he's actually angry, angry underneath. And Rayburn is lost.
2: (laughs) It's very uncomfortable, really. Yeah. And when that contestant doesn't win and we're saying goodbye to that contestant, I think everyone on the panel is sad. You know, I think they feel badly because by rights, that contestant should have gotten three more matches, (laughs) you know, since everyone said school in one form or another.
1: It's interesting how Rayburn saw... Flat out aggressive, sometimes mean. Even he's not above telling the contestants that they gave a stupid answer.
2: Yes, <laughs> he's very dominant. That is something that I felt in stark contrast to the other personalities, the other host personalities. Gene is in charge. He's tall. He's imposing. He's a big man and in charge of that set. It's his domain.
1: Gary, I know what you're thinking. Mm, yes, yeah. Bruce Forsyth. Mm-hmm, yeah. But I don't think Bruce Forsyth would have lost control like Gene does. That was the thing. For all this dominant personality, as soon as somebody really pushes back, Rayburn is looking off at, he's hoping that some stagehand will come and help. And as I understand it, Gene Rayburn had a bit of an attitude that partially came from him coming from the East Coast. He didn't really like L.A. He thought it was uncultured.
2: That's interesting. I could see that and he had quite a pedigree really in the beginnings of American television so I think that with that comes a certain ego I'm sure of being part of the original Tonight Show and so forth. Uh, That would be a culture shock for him.
1: It's something I want to talk about with Blankety Blank though. I think the truth for a lot of classic game show hosts certainly in the US and to a certain extent in the UK is this was not the job they wanted. They were actors or other kinds of talent who found themselves in this role but they couldn't really let on and when we get to blankety blank particularly when we get to blankety blank with les dawson the whole thing is that he's acting like this thing is beneath him insulting the prizes (laughs) could anybody have ever gotten away with that on american tv
2: no 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 those the prizes are sacrosanct you know the money or the shag carpeting or whatever you're winning the dinette set it's the best thing that's ever happened to you that's the attitude that's coming across
0: okay i'm, I'm gonna advance my theory now about match game so th- this is just a sense that i get and tilt and i watched watched too many episodes of match game <laughs> and blanky blank and blanksy blanks and researching this i think we must have seen i think actually if you combine them all i've probably seen about 100 do you not know, think so till
1: yeah probably watch them when we were meant to be watching other things
0: yeah yeah So, okay, with both blankety-blank, with the occasional exception of, say, if you get like a particular panellist who maybe doesn't fit, and yes, I'm talking about Bernie Clifton, we'll discuss him later on, with that and blankety-blanks, I get a warm, fuzzy feeling that everybody's just along for the ride, it's all good, silly fun, and it's just stuff and nonsense, and yes, it's nice if people are also playing along, hoping the contestants going to win something, but it's just exactly that, it's just camp silly nonsense. With Match Game, I always get a slightly sort of tense feel, whereas I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just sometimes like the the, the dialogue between Rayburn and, say, Brett Summers or Charles Nelson, Riley, or sometimes if you're wondering, is Richard Dawson annoyed today or whatever it may be, just sometimes you get the impression (laughs) that everybody's sort of not quite walking on eggshells, but you just sort of think this could potentially develop into an argument at any point on this show.
2: I agree. I think there is a tension maybe some of that is everything they're drinking or snorting over lunch, (laughs) you know, the (laughs) 70s were not a chaste time, you know, so uh, that has to contribute. And, you know, I think it's interesting too. again, in seeing a documentary, I heard some of the other panelists talk about Richard Dawson so many years later, and it doesn't sound like he was a favorite of anyone, you know, that he was there radiating a lot of very serious feelings about as you were saying earlier, he's, serious about the game he wants the contestants to win and that might take away a little bit from just the party atmosphere the just having a good time saying silly things i think your theory is holds water there's definitely a different energy to the american version that's not as laid back not as silly
1: well you know what happened about the wheel yes
2: yes the way the game is played is there's a couple of rounds with, of course, the contestants trying to match with the celebrity panel. And then once someone wins the you know, most matches over those two games, then they get to go to super match. There's a phrase and they need to finish it and they get to choose three people. If they do well in that, then they get to go on to the head-to-head, which is with one celebrity. And they just need to answer the question and then see if the celebrity has come up with the same thing. And invariably, people picked Richard over and over and over, picked Richard Dawson. So much so that um, a couple of years in, they came up with this wheel that the contestant would have to spin in order to pick their celebrity instead of just choosing a celebrity. And of course, the very first time they used it, the wheel fell on Richard. (laughs) So that didn't work out. And, uh, you know, I believe Richard didn't take well to the wheel. He felt like it was a personal slight. But he was good at the game. He was sharp and he was in tune somehow with, you know, the zeitgeisty group think about what other people might be thinking so he matched often with people and became a real favorite
1: i understand the wheel was the beginning of his attitude he asked to be released and wasn't and that was then the beginning of him not even hiding that he didn't want to be there
2: yeah and you see those episodes where he's just stone-faced and he's playing he's giving answers he's doing well but he's not part of the party anymore certainly
0: i just wonder if this idea about. There being a little bit more sort of tension between the players and what have you. I wonder, do you think that some of this comes down to the more intense production schedule with Match Game? Because, I mean, T Blank, for example, might have, say, 16 editions in its run and probably they're going to take two of them in, in one outing. Whereas Match Game, I mean, just the sheer number of them. With it being a daily show, plus you're doing like the primetime version as well. And what have you, that's an awful lot of time for that group of people to all be sort of living in each other's pockets.
2: It does sound like a rigorous schedule, long hours together, drink some more vodka, you know, that's certainly had to be part of it. On the other hand, these are actors and comedians and such. At least it's some steady work. And as I understand, you know, that's not always an easy thing to come by. I think for some, they're probably very glad to be there, but it's a long day to spend switching out wigs and changing your clothes five times and so forth.
0: Who who do we think was switching out wigs?
2: <laughs> Brett Summers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and do, do we actually suspect that anybody was perhaps having the occasional sort of nip, maybe vodka, maybe gin, actually during the show on the set, holding up the card in such a way that you can't see the little hip flask behind <laughs>
2: it? You know, sometimes they have a little cup of water, which, you know, there's a number of clear liquids that it could have been otherwise. Um, again, I'm going to point fingers at Brett Summers. <laughs> but who knows?
1: <laughs> I think if you're really perceptive, you could actually try and work out where in the shooting schedule the show you're watching
2: is. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Must have been better to be yeah. a contestant, like in the first two.
2: <laughs> Before things get really loose. And- yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, we saw a Christmas edition at one point where suddenly Brett and Charles start doing this like little routine. It's almost like when, like if the teachers had suddenly got up and started doing some little skit at the end of term party or something like that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it just, my memory is that it went on and on and on <laughs> and everybody's sort of politely laughing along and what have you, but it, it seemed a bit odd. I don't know.
2: Uh Uh-huh. You know, there was something, it might've been the school riot episode or I I can't quite remember, but there was something that they came back from commercial and Charles was lying on the floor and then Brett came over with some cards and did this little routine and it, it was funny for a a moment and then it stopped being funny. (laughs) You know, it's again, I think something happens too when people are together and you get your in jokes together and you're something about that energy of being on the set and you think you're the funniest thing in the world but no one else is in your bubble so it's yeah. not that funny <laughs> to other people
1: mark goodson must have hated that because he really wanted it to be played completely straight did he, he? Apparently, ha- apparently he had one particular complaint about a show where they only asked four questions and ribbon said yeah but it was funny
2: <laughs> it wouldn't be as much fun if we played it completely straight <laughs> yeah yeah I think playing that show straight, that ship sailed (laughs) very early. It wasn't going to happen. But, you know, it is interesting to see that the pilot, you know, the 1962 very first episode. And there's so few that exist from that era of 1962 to 1969, where it is very much a straight quiz show in the mold of all the other quiz shows that Mark Goodson had put together. You know, like What's My Line and those kinds of things. It's drab. Everyone's very, very polite. And it's not nearly as fun.
1: Did anything strike you about the Australian and British versions?
2: The first thing that struck me were the hosts. The hosts really, I think, make a show. They bring a flavor and attitude, as we were talking about with Gene Rayburn and his particular style. I found first the Australian show, Blankety Blanks, plural, very subtle for me because, of course, I'm American. <laughs> um, but I watched it a few times. I watched the few episodes. I had it several times. And as I started to understand the panel a little more and their personalities, these things sort of emerged, you know, and I understood the interplay more, but it wasn't something when I sat down for the very first time that it wasn't laugh out loud funny to me. I feel bad saying that. But I, I thought Graham Kennedy, who host that show, was very charming, very charming, and really carried it for me. Well,
1: in Australia, he's known as the king.
2: Is that right? <laughs> yes, the
1: king of television. <laughs> ah, TV movies made about him, tributes all over the place.
2: Oh, my goodness. You know, he has that charisma, for sure, that takes people through those kinds of jobs where, you know, it can be kind of thankless to be the host and to run the party, um, to, to stay with that tired metaphor now. But he really brought a lot of that to life. And his interplays with um, ugly Dave Gray, silly puns and bad jokes, but their obvious delight in each other makes that really fun. So, Blankety Blank, your version, I am still laughing at the checkbook. <laughs> oh! <laughs> That's
1: fantastic that you spotted that. It is a standing joke, and apparently those things cost £80 in late 70s, early 80s money, and actually did cost more than some of the prizes.
2: Oh my you're kidding me. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, that it made me laugh every time they told the poor losing contestant that they were going to walk out with a checkbook and a pen. (laughs) Now, that it was some sort of like metal little sculpture, right? Is that what it Mm -hmm. was? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I never
1: understood it as a child. I thought, is there a special property to this? Can you use this? Is there a
0: blankety (laughs) bank?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, well done. But it's
1: probably serious money on eBay now. Those things.
2: I'm sure there's probably not a ton of them out in the world anymore. So, yeah, I loved Terry Wogan. Do I need to say Sir Terry Wogan to be <laughs> proper? I thought he was lovely and funny, and I really liked his era, I think, a little more than Les Dawson. I'm sorry. Um, Les Dawson is charming, he's very physical. Like you said, he's bringing this great big wink all the time of look at these crap prizes and and all of this, and that is a certain energy that's very, very funny, but there was something, I don't know, out of out of all of this walking away, I just feel this warm feeling for Terry Wogan. <laughs> I just really like the way he hosted the show, and, and it, I thought it charming that he wanted to have the same kind of mic as, uh, as Gene Rayburn. As same kind,
1: but not actually the same mic.
2: Right, it's sort of rigged together, is that right?
1: Yes, they looked into getting a uh, Sony ECM-51, And it was like, Oh, let's just take a clip on mic and glue it to the end of a car aerial.
2: (laughs) Is that what it is?
1: That's what it is, yes.
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I I like the whole feeling of how a little bit cheap it is, you know? The contestants have to flip their own little thing that indicates they got a match. They don't even get lights. And it has a a definite charm all its own.
1: And they're not playing for dollars.
2: Yes. They're they're playing playing for blinks. Yeah. Gary, did ITV
1: shows have nicer prizes than BBC ones?
0: I think probably on balance, yes, they did. Because it's not just a question of the broadcasting rules allowing prizes of a certain value. I mean, there are, yeah, there's plenty of BBC shows which have really good prizes in them. But also, the BBC is always going to have one eye on spending the public's money carefully. Whereas ITV doesn't have to worry about that. So I suspect that if you go a few years down the line when the restrictions have been lifted, even then you still wouldn't get who wants to be a millionaire on the BBC, for example. Even though they potentially could do it, the rules would allow it, but it would be a faux pas as far as their you know public relations were concerned. But one other thing as well that we were discussing off-air the other day, that you notice with the BBC version, and of course there's an obvious reason as to why this is, you don't have all the little opportunities for sponsorship. So you don't have, for example, Teddy Wogan's suit was provided by this store. When Teddy Wogan records blanky Blank in Shepherd's Bush, he stays at this hotel, and so on and so on. You don't have any of that, of course, because you can't. And even then, if it had been an ITV show back at that time, you couldn't have that kind of thing either, because the sponsorship rules were very different.
2: Which isn't a bad thing, really. <laughs> I, st- I thought they yeah. were going to start
0: giving out Graham Kennedy's room number or something like that. The amount of detail they're going into there. It's like every last aspect. I mean, what, what, does he have still water? Does he have sparkling? I mean, you know. <laughs> what time does his alarm call go off at? I mean, all this kind of stuff. It's all there. It was a
1: spin-off soft drink. Yes. Blankety blank's lemonade. <laughs> I can't remember which Les Dawson ones we watched, but I just thought to point out that when Les Dawson did his first show, he comes on and the first thing he does, he snaps the mic in half. <laughs> just let everybody know it's, well, it's a new idea. his job now.
0: So Megan, how familiar are you with the the later shows, the, the you know post Gene Rayburn?
2: I'm not very familiar. I'm aware that there was sort of a Hollywood Squares match game hybrid hour that didn't do well in the 80s and there was another attempt to revive it in the 90s with yet another host at his name escapes me i've glanced at this new version that's happening with alec baldwin yeah i'd rather watch some reruns <laughs> you know um, really than to dip into these retreads i guess They're the thing just... is
1: once you're allowed to give penis as an answer <laughs> then what's the point of match game anymore
2: Well, that destroys the whole tension that I was talking about earlier, about constraining the American sensibility and keeping it in a certain boundary, and that's what makes the tension and makes it compelling. When you can hold up a card that clearly says penis, and it's being blurred out, and they play the little slide whistle sound, that's it. (laughs) It's not It's not that funny. It's, oh, he said a naughty word. Well, who hasn't? It's just not that interesting anymore.
1: I gather that was partially the downfall of the original version, though, that in the early 80s, once you're allowed to say boobs, it became a problem. And they tried to rewrite the questions. And the brief was, try and conjure up wacky mental pictures. Nothing dirty.
2: That's a tough order. (laughs) Wacky mental images is not a very compelling idea, is it? You know, it's interesting, because I read about the Australian version was up for renewal, that Ugly Dave Gray, the comedian, said that he felt for his part he had made every joke he could make on that show and didn't feel like continuing. And I do think that in a format like this, there's just a limit. There's only so far you can go with with this kind of innuendo, not saying the obvious kind of thing. But again, Americans, if they have something good that's going, they're going to keep going (laughs) if they can. You know, they're not known for stopping at 12 episodes or leaving them wanting more.
1: Gary, we'll deal with what happened on Blankety Blank later on, but thinking about something we alluded to earlier, Megan, are you ever aware of any incidents where a particular panelist misbehaved too much or tried to be too funny and was never asked back?
2: Uh, I don't think so. I don't think there were any anything that extreme. I think probably just a panelist who didn't, wasn't, that funny or it just the chemistry wasn't right maybe they weren't they didn't come back no bad behavior that comes off the top of my head good
1: to know
0: you just mentioned there megan about the sheer number of episodes and how they keep on going and also there's so many different revivals because we've got revivals i think it was bert convey is a chap who was hosting in the early 90s and then it comes back again in the late 90s and we've got the current version there's also a ton of unsold pilots including one by fox in 2004 which was apparently titled what the blank exclamation mark but just tallying up here, there's something in the region of about 4,000 match games if you take all the different versions altogether. So why is there not a match game channel? I know it airs on GSN, <laughs> but I mean, why have they not got like a, a spin-off channel that's just 24 hour match game and nothing else, you'd think?
2: Oh, that's a lot of match games. I had no idea. Wow. You're right. I mean, G- Game Show Channel or Buzzer alone, could they could just run match game constantly and not repeat it for quite a long time.
0: I'm sure they do have like match game weeks and things like that where it's just solid.
2: Yeah, blocks and things. I'm sure they do. I know that, you know, they at least have an hour block or something like that daily or twice daily. There's so many.
0: As far as you're aware, are there any particular examples of match game becoming part of popular culture outside of its own area? So, for example, is there other other like well-known like, I don't know, Saturday Night Live skits about match game? Or did it have like a lot of spin-off merchandise or things like that?
2: I don't think so. I know it's been alluded to um, elsewhere, but not a lot. There aren't any big Saturday Night Live. It's not one of those things that became iconic for what it was, such as, say, The Price is Right. That's the kind of thing that people talk about bidding a dollar, that that's part of sort of the lexicon in the culture. And that's the beginning of the show when they're bidding to go on stage. I don't remember what that section's called, but <laughs> but when they're bidding. But as far as match game, it had a longevity in its time, And I think that it's a great format for television, but it isn't something that's become like there isn't a cultural shorthand for it. There may have been an allusion to it on The Simpsons that's coming to mind, but I'm not sure.
0: Where would you tend to rank Match Game in terms of like sort of iconic American game shows? I get the impression that maybe I'm wrong, but I get the impression that probably The Price is Right is number one.
2: It's up there with Family Feud. That's another one that keeps being resurrected with a new host, and it has those catchphrases that everybody knows, Survey says. So those two kind of contend for numbers one and two. I think Match Game, it's very important for the 70s. It's an icon of that period. As far as ranking it with other game shows, it's in the middle a little bit. It's important. It's a part of TV that was very different of bringing all the celebrities together. You know, I think it keeps happening again and maybe I'm wrong, this is my theory, but I, I think it's a good way to get people on TV and get people to see, oh I love so and so. Oh, he's on the show this afternoon, I'll watch it. But you know, even though a lot of people I think have heard of it or if you mention it to someone like, Oh Match game, yeah, it doesn't hold the same isn't beloved like something like The Price is Right or Family Feud. People don't say, Oh yeah, I I watch that every day when I was a kid. They might say, Oh, I kinda remember that. Was Betty White on that? <laughs> it's important and it's certainly a very important part of the 70s
0: and the crucial question megan is did you ever own a milton bradley match game board game
2: i'm afraid i did not i had family feud again i don't mean to start sibling rivalry between match game and family feud but i didn't have a match game game sorry to say
0: did the family feud game have the noise did it have the uh, uh, noise
1: that wasn't on family feud gary Oh, blame me. No, that's a Family they Fortunes Yeah, You don't thing, have it? that <gasps> noise oh. that just gets under your skin like <laughs> it does on Family Fortunes. <laughs> Go and demonstrate.
0: Okay, so when somebody gets something wrong in Family Fortunes, and it's always been the case from day one to the present day, the big board makes a noise that goes. Eh-eh. Like that. I've got a video to prove this. Uh, there's like a Family Fortunes board game that's available right now. And even when it's just on the shelf, it's got a big red button on it. And it says, Press a button. And you press a button and it goes. And that's all you could hear if you were in the toy shop. If you were working there all day, you'd probably hear that about a thousand
2: times. Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with this, Megan, but there is a format which the highest exposure ever really had was in the UK. And it ran for about three years in the UK in the early 1980s on a show called Punchlines. And it is developed from, I think I'm right and saying an American format, but it's one which is under the radar as far as its American headings are concerned. But that is a similar sort of structure to Match Game, although you have eight celebrities, you have eight contestants, celebrity contestants, and you've got two members of the public who are playing the game as well. And it's similar to Match Game, but what they do in this is that they basically, all of the celebrities, they read out punchlines to jokes, and then the host then reads out a series of feed lines and the contestant has to match the feed line with the punch line. So, I mean, c- could that have been potentially a sort of cure for the, the, the match game problem of always going down the innuendo path? Because basically everything from start to finish is pretty much controlled.
2: Possibly, because again, you have the part of the formula that works so well, which is having celebrities and celebrities working with contestants. You know, something like Password was very popular here for a long time and had several incarnations where the celebrities and, um, oh, what's the other one? The $10,000 pyramid or the pyramid, the very expensive pyramid, where again, you have celebrities who are working with the contestants to try and finish phrases or guess words and that sort of thing, Um, that's very popular. So, yeah, that's a really interesting concept, Um, and I'm surprised that I haven't seen that really pick up.
1: Yeah, the thing about punchlines is it avoids the anybody-can-say-anything problem. And, Gary, they weren't really punchlines to jokes. They were really just answers to questions. Some of them were punchlines to jokes, but some of them were just questions so that you could have somebody say who rode through coventry on a horse stark naked and he went i think it's celebrity number three and they'd say damn judy dench <laughs> but that was it so you could get innuendo wacky mental images but nobody just saying parts of the body with their most medical names
0: <laughs> well, I, the, the fact that you are effectively being given the answer although you've got plenty to choose from I don't know if that's what he was alluding to in the host of Punchlines Lenny Bennett said it's a show that people watch when they find Blankety Blank too intellectually challenging.
1: <laughs> Gary, did you hear that noise? I think I heard somebody opening a can of Blankety Blank's Lemonade. I think we better wind up here.
0: Well, Megan, thank you very much indeed for joining us today in the Eastern Time Zone, which is a rarity for this show. And can you let listeners know... Whereabouts else in the world of podcasting can they find yourself?
2: Sure. You know, it's been my absolute pleasure. So thank you. Thank you very much. And people can find me. I have a podcast called Same Page Cast where my partner, Craig Smith, and I, we talk about pop culture, movies, and music. Um, We recently made each other watch a couple of strange 70s musicals um, (laughs) to see our reactions. And that's the kind of thing that we have a good time with. So you can find us at samepagecast.com. And we would love for you to take a listen.
1: Next week, we're going to go to Australia, look at Blankety Blanks, and then look at what happens when it returned to the mother country of the Commonwealth to become Blankety Blank. I've been Tilted Issa. I've been Gary. And we'll see you next week.